I am up here with a handheld mic again because for the third week I am not teaching, but I will be teaching again next week, believe it or not. A couple announcements before we dive into this morning's uh, sermon out of the book of Exodus, I believe chapter 20. Is that right? No, 18, 32, 3, Exodus 3. <laughs> Did you change it? No. I just am not good with numbers, so it's a good thing I'm not teaching. Exodus 3, that is for you, Kate, so you can, you can go there now. Uh, a couple announcements. As we are singing these songs and worshiping and proclaiming that we want to, to know this God who we can actually depend on, it is fascinating in the midst of a culture that is overwhelmed with anxiety and stress and burden to instead be overwhelmed by a God that is always trustworthy. There's no other person in this world that we can trust in always, yet we can on Jesus. And so if you're at a place where you're figuring out what that looks like or you want to know more about this Jesus, next week we will be officially launching what we call Start Here. And it's a community, which is just a group of people journeying together as they start uh, your relationship with Jesus. And so we'll meet in what we call the studio, which is the room uh, behind the glass garage door on the other side of the building. And it'll be a great place for you to encounter this God more, to understand what it means to follow him, and uh, to understand the leadership of our church. But most importantly, I think you will be overwhelmed in the best sense of the word by who Jesus is and begin to understand what it means to follow him. So if that's you, I'd love for you to fill out your Get Connected card in the seat back uh, in front of you and just write start here. That will start next week during the second service at 1045. Uh, and it's just a great place to start. If you have questions about that, come up to me after. I'd love to give you a little bit more information, but we're excited for that to begin next week. Uh, second, if you're just new with us in general, we will be having a welcome lunch, and this is our opportunity, A, to feed you, uh, but B, just to give you the vision of the church to let you know the staff, our leadership structure, the vision of the church in a little bit more detail, and then to answer any questions that you might have. And so we'll be having a welcome lunch two Sundays from now, if I can do the math correctly, I think that's right, October 20th, and so that'll be after the second service in the studio as well. And so if you uh, wouldn't mind to just email info at restorationaz.org and just say welcome lunch, that gives us a clue of how many people to plan to feed. But we'd love to have you there to answer your questions and to, to get to know you uh, a little bit more. So with that in mind, I want to go ahead and invite Seth Trout up. As Seth is making his way up, will you please uh, welcome him for me? Seth is a, uh, a pastor at Redemption Gateway, whom uh, Luke Simmons, who's one of the, the members of our management team, is the lead pastor of. And so Luke's been a great influence on my life. And in multiple ways, Redemption Gateway has uh, played a, a big role in our church as a journey. I was doing a church planting residency there uh, really right before you came on staff, and we kind of swapped in a, a sort of way. So I'm, I'm thankful to have Seth and his wisdom with us this morning teaching out of Exodus 3. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Landon. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Seth. I, um, I'm grateful to get to be here with you all this morning. It's fun to get to come up to Prescott. Um, just a couple quick things about me. So I've been a pastor 10 years now, and I was on staff at a church in Tempe where actually my parents got saved the year before I was born, or they became Christians the year before I was born. And so, so I grew up there, and then I came on to staff there. After I graduated high school, I was a music person for a couple of years, and then I became like a college pastor, groups pastor. And then about three years ago, I switched and um, 
took a job at Redemption Church, which is in, uh, um, you know, there's a handful of locations there, but that's kind of my deal. My wife, I actually met in eighth grade at church. Um, I was uh, attending the church for a while, and I just wasn't super connected in any um, real capacity. I'd go on Sundays with my parents, but then by the time I was kind of in middle school, I was too cool for the church thing, and I kind of started to disengage. And actually, one of my really good friends who went to my public middle school with me, his parents were the directors of Campus Crusade for Christ at ASU. So he was uh, an evangelist from an unusually young age. Um, and so he was inviting me to church and getting me engaged, and I, I wouldn't come to, like, the Wednesday night kids thing. Um, or like to the deal, and he said, hey, there's this really, um, uh, this girl I have a huge crush on, maybe you could come meet her, and I was like, sure, so he came, I, that got me to church, and I came on Wednesday night, and he introduced me to who would be my future wife in, in uh, eighth grade, so we're still friends, um, but there is some tension about some of that thing. Um, but my wife is act, my, my wife's actually here. She's not, she's not here right now. She'll come to the 1045 service. She'll be the one who looks very pregnant, or at least um, don't tell her to say like that. But she's the one who's nine months pregnant, so she'll look like that. Um, so we're, we're kind of in this phase now um, where uh, we're having to pick a name, you know, and we kind of landed on a first name, not really landed on a second name or middle name, I guess you could call it, and there's just a lot, of ten, a lot of anxiety in that. You know, it's like the, the only time in your life where you just speak something and it becomes true. You know, the rest of the time you do that, they call you crazy. You know, like, uh, but to, because names mean things, right? You know, you, you say a name, especially because she's a speech therapist, so she works in the school. So she interacts with lots of kids and has lots of friends who've interacted with lots of kids. And so you're going like, what about the name Charlie? And it's like, oh, no. Charlie can't happen because I have a fourth grader named Charlie and he bites people, you know, so we can't do that, you know, or, or what about, what about Bill? You know, Bill can't happen. No, why, why not Bill? Well, Bill, like I have a student whose dad's name is Bill and, you know, he always comes in smelling like, like weed. So I just can't, Bill equals weed. So I can't name him Bill. So it's, so there's all these, like, you can't, you're just chopping it down and, and so, but the names mean something. It's interesting in our kind of our current American Western context that names mean less now than probably they've ever met in any other culture. You know, most other, you meet someone from other places and other times in history, um, and you know, their name means something, and like the name is attached to all the significance, and now it's like a name might mean uh, it's connected to a family, but other than that, there's not a lot of meaning there, but names matter a lot, um, and, and especially in the ancient, ancient, ancient culture here. And so what I'm going to actually do is I'm teaching out of Exodus 3 and 4 a little bit here, and um, I just want to focus on this first thing about names, right? So at this point in the story in the book of Exodus, those of you who don't know, so right now um, in this context of the book of Exodus, um, the Jewish people, God's people, are enslaved in Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 3, Moses, who would eventually become a famous faith leader, actually has fled into the wilderness and he's tending to sheep. And God comes to him and God introduces himself to him. And Moses says, who will I say you are? What's your name? Because names mean things. And God gives him this really vague answer, actually. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's kind of like a non-answer to some degree. I, you know, then he says, tell them that I am has sent you. And you kind of picture, like, at least in my mind when I, when I read that freshly, and I picture, like, some, some hippie from the 60s who just is what it is, man. You know, like, what it is. You know, or some kind of, like, kid who's, like, trying to, like, who's listening to Bob Marley because he thinks he's relaxed, but actually he's totally anxious. You know, like, what it is, man. You know, and it's just, like, this, this sense of, like, that's a non-answer. 
And you kind of ask the question, like, is God being intentionally vague here? Now, there's significance to this. You know, he's the non-manipulatable one. He, he is what, he's non-contingent. All of us, our identities and our sense of who we are is derivative or contingent based on who we are, where we came from, our choices we make. But God is the one who's unchanging and eternal and the one who can be predictable, whereas we're all unpredictable. So there's some sense in which I will be what I will be. You can't really affect me. Um, don't we all wish we were that secure? Don't we all wish we were that predictable? Um, I'm going to be who I'm going to be, but all of us, yes, but he's, but it's kind of vague. I just want to like acknowledge the vagueness of this. There's a, an Old Testament scholar named Walter Brueggemann who I really appreciate, and he said this about God's name. He says, the entire Exodus narrative is an exposition of the name of Exodus 3.14, this I am who I am, requiring all of its powerful verbs for adequate expression. So essentially the point that Walter's making here about this text is that when God says, here's my name, it's going to take the rest of the book of the Exodus to figure out what that name means. That if you haven't read the book of Exodus before, it's pretty gnarly. There's a lot going on. But not only that, for us as Christians, we recognize that to understand the name of God, you actually have to take the rest of the scriptures to begin to even sense what does God's name mean? That God's name will take on meaning over time as we see him act and reveal himself in history. But what I want to do here in Exodus 3 and 4 is there's a lot in these two chapters, and I could spend 10 sermons talking about just these two chapters, but what I really want to focus on here is the things that God does immediately after revealing his name to Moses. What are we going to learn about what God's name means and how God treats people right after, right in the moments after, God reveals his name to Moses. What are the first tastes, the first glimmers of what we mean? The first impressions that are going to begin to color, what does Yahweh mean? What does that name mean? What does it mean that God is I am who I am? How does this affect the way that he treats people? How does it affect the way he treats sinful people? How does, how does it affect the way he treats insecure people? How does it affect the way he treats people who resist him? And we're going to look here um, in the way that God treats Moses. And so I'm um, going back to like my sermon title. I want us to talk about God's name and Moses' inability. Because you may not know this, but Moses is pretty much a huge loser. That's his, like, his deal. Um, and even at this point in the story, he's proven himself to make a disaster of his life. That this far in the story, what's happened is we learn that Moses grows up in the most privileged of all positions. That he should have been killed multiple times, but yet he squeaks by, makes it through. And then all of a sudden we have this little Jewish boy, this minority, outcast, slave family citizen. But he's going to grow up in Pharaoh's household. He essentially goes to what is the best private school to the best language school, in the best of all households. To the Jews, he probably would have been the hope, the golden child, the one who can read and write, the one who's going to work his way up to influence Pharaoh, and maybe once Moses keeps ascending to the heights of society, then Moses will be able to influence Pharaoh, and maybe Pharaoh will treat us lowly Jews more effectively. And Moses, growing up in this society, he's reading, he's writing, he's learning. It's something that was not common to slaves, certainly, but not even common in the ancient Near Eastern culture at all. And Moses is growing and ascending, and, he's, and God has provided for him and protected him, and he's ascending to like a powerful position. And then the next thing that happens is Moses, in a moment of weakness, in a moment of anger, commits 
premeditated murder of an Egyptian. Essentially, being given all this promise, all this opportunity, all this potential, all this earning potential, all this influence potential, and he gets angry and kills someone. So when we come to Exodus 3, what we know at this point is Moses has successfully wasted his potential. You might be in that position in your life where you have been told, you know, this happens to a lot of folks. You know, one of my coworkers, you know, he's kind of saying, I just hit the point in my life where I no longer have potential. I just have what I have. You know, you get told when you're 12, you have potential. You get told when you're 22, you have potential. You get told when you're 32, you have a little potential left. You know, then you get told when you're 40, your kids have potential. <laughs> you know. Moses had potential, and he squandered it with his impulse and his anger. Now the next thing that happens is we see him, and he's in the wilderness. And the guy who should have been the politician, the guy who should have been the government influencer, the guy who should have been the litigator who is going to help liberate the oppressed, he's a farmer all of a sudden. Was not plan A, was probably not plan B, maybe it wasn't plan C. It was probably what he could do, given his circumstance. Even then, he's not a farmer. He doesn't own any sheep. He's, you know, kind of mooching off his father-in-law, you know. And God comes to this guy, the guy who wastes his potential, the guy who impulsively commits murder, and he appears to him in a burning bush. He says, Moses, I want you to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. You imagine Moses going like, you have the wrong guy. You certainly have the wrong guy. And that's literally what he says. <laughs> that's what Moses says. Look with me. If you're following along, Exodus 3, I'm going to look at a, a handful of things. So, so God says, I am who I am. And God says to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. And there's a piece of this in which you go, Israel has now been enslaved for 400 years. Have you ever thought about how long 400 years is? You know, it, right now it's 1919. I mean, it's 2019. 100 years ago was 1919. 1819, 1719, 1619. You know, there's been a handful of stories um, lately because of it being 2019 that 400 years ago, the first slave ships taking people from Africa to North America landed. That was 400 years ago. 1619. You remember? Think, think about it like this. Uh, there are college football players, 18-year-olds, who were born after 9-11. We don't even know what it was like 20 years ago. You know, we don't, what was it like before smart, what was it like before, like I learned how to drive after I had a smartphone. Like I had a map I don't know what it's like to use a map. I don't know what it was like 25 years ago. Do you know what it was like 30, what was it, 40, 50, 60, hundreds of years ago? And then out of nowhere, God says to Moses, tell them the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sent you. 400 years ago. Now God's speaking. You have to say, to some degree, Moses goes, oh, you've heard the cries of our people? 
Oh, you've heard that we've been enslaved? Oh, you're here to show up? Okay, well, you're just about 399 years too late. Where have you been? Because grandpa and grandpa's grandpa and grandpa's grandpa's grandpa and grandpa's 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 grandpa all the way back for 400 years have been slaves. And now God's like, hmm, now's the right. You have to imagine there's this doubt in Moses' mind. You want me to go tell Pharaoh, the God who's let us be slaves for 400 years, says now's the time let my people go? And you expect Pharaoh to believe me? One, because where have you been? Two, because I'm a murderer. Three, because I'm the guy who squandered his potential. There's like a real kind of recognition there that Moses is going, I'm not qualified. And God, you've been silent for 400 years. And not only that, but this is actually the first of a handful of 400 periods. So God is silent for 400 years when Israel's enslaved in Egypt. Then he's silent for another 400 years later on in the exile when they're in Babylon. And then after that, God is silent for another 400 years before the time of Jesus. So there's something that we as Christians or maybe Christians have to recognize. And it's just that like there's a pretty serious theme in the scriptures called God is silent sometimes. Some of you might be in a season right now where it feels like your experience of God has been that he's silent. How do you wrestle with that? How do you make sense of that? Because that's a problem that we as Christians have to deal with. That there are seasons when God seems silent. And, you know, the, the Psalms talk about this all the time. You know, Psalm 13 is one of these things that the, God's people learn how to pray in some of these times of silence. I just want to read for you this, this Psalm here because... Maybe this is something that Israel learned how to do in Exodus. Maybe it's something they learned how to do later on. But I just want to read to you this um, Psalm 13. This is, this is what this, the psalmist says. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? See, I see that as a prayer full of faith. God, you could be speaking. I believe you could be speaking. God, you are good, but my experience of you is that you're silent. Does your faith have room to pray like this? Because I think that Israel learned how to pray like this because they believed God was good, but yet they experienced him as silent. See, sometimes when people near us feel like God is silent, we want to rebuke that person. God's not silent. But what if he is? What if he's building faith in the midst of a season of silence? What if he's teaching us to trust not in his ongoing voice but in his previously recorded voice? What if he's teaching us to obey in the context of difficulty, not just in the context of positivity? So there's all these reasons why Moses might resist God's call, and he does. Not only that, but God tells him Moses isn't going to listen, or Pharaoh's not going to listen. Verse 19, chapter 3. But I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled. I imagine then uh, Moses would say, okay, well then compel him. <laughs> Why are you going to do this song and dance ahead of time? I'm going to go risk my neck. 
Anyway, booming voice of the Lord coming from a burning bush. Take off your shoes. This is holy ground. Moses, go to Pharaoh. And then Moses, with a lot of courage slash stupidity, says, but, <laughs> verse, chapter 4, verse 1, but then Moses answered, but, the first word out of Moses' mouth, but, but behold, they won't believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, God didn't appear to you. The Lord didn't appear to you. It takes some courage, right? Booming voice, burning bush. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Go. You expect Moses to be quivering. His voice coming from a bush. Here I am, God, send me. And Moses kind of goes, No. Why? What's he nervous? They're not going to believe me. They're not going to listen to me. Moses' first reaction is disbelief in the people of God and insecurity. I'm a shepherd. I'm a murderer. I ran away. I'm not there. They're not going to listen. Moses resists. And here's what the Lord says. I expect, here's what I'd expect God to do. Say, Moses, quit being insecure. Have more faith. Do what I say. That's what I expect to happen, right? Shut up, comply. That's not what happens. The Lord says to him, what's that in your hand? Chapter 4, verse 2. A staff, Moses responds. And he said, throw it on the ground. He threw it on the ground, and the staff becomes a snake. He says, now pick up that that snake. He picks up the snake. It turns back into staff. Then he says, not only that, so that's kind of miracle number one I'm going to give you. Now I want you to take your hand, I want you to put it inside your cloak, pull it out. He pulls out his hand, and it's full of leprosy, snowy white, decayed. Moses freaking out. He says, okay, now put it back in your cloak. Pulls in his cloak, pull it back out. Now it's healed. All right, I want you to go and do these two miracles. And if they don't listen to you, then here's another third miracle. He says at the end, if they don't believe you, even after these two signs, then take some water from the Nile, pour it on the ground, It'll turn to blood. That's verse 9. So I'm going to give you three miracles that's going to help them believe you. So here's the question. Are these miracles for Moses or are these miracles for the people of Israel? Is God giving faith to Moses or is God accommodating his insecurity or is he trying to help the other Israelites believe? I think that part of this is God just accommodating Moses' insecurity and weakness. He's like, okay. Whatever it's going to take to get you to go speak, I'm going to do it. Sweet says. So Moses is now just plays a part in three miracles in a row after hearing the burning bush. So that's four. So God's voice from the bush. Here's miracle number one. The staff turns to the snake. Here's miracle number two. Um, I'm going to turn your hand to leprosy. Here's miracle number three. I'm going to turn this water into blood. Now, Moses, now you go speak. And he kind of like, okay, at this point, Moses would say, okay, I'm ready. You know, here I am, send me. I have three miracles that God's going to help me do to help me prove to them that God's speaking now. Um, verse, chapter 4, verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, is he stupid or is he courageous? But, oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. Moses goes, Look, man, I have a stutter. Look, I'm a pretty poor public speaker. You know, what's going on in 
the Lord's heart. Then the Lord said to him, you think I don't know that? Who made mouths? Who makes people mute, deaf, seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? You think you're going to tell me something I don't know, Moses? I made your mouth. I made your mind. I made your hands. I made your clothes. I made everything. And you think that I didn't know this was going to be a problem? I made all of this. Then you should, Moses, okay, what's Moses' correct response here? Moses say, you know what? You're right. You're the creator of the heaven and creator of earth. Whatever you say, Lord. Nope. It's not what happens. Verse 13, but, this is Moses' fourth protest. But, he said, oh, my Lord, send someone else. Now, how is, how is Yahweh, king of heaven and earth, feeling at this point? You know, I just might. Forget you, Moses. I might go find plan B. You're ridiculous. I don't need this. You know, I've, give, I've appeared in the burning bush. I've spoken on behalf. I have this booming voice. Like, how much convincing does a person need? Verse 14, it says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. So God's getting frustrated. God is having an emotional experience. You know, this is what anger is. Anger is when your will is blocked by someone or something. Sometimes it's good. So a lot of you experience anger, probably most of you. Whenever you're angry, it's because your will is being blocked by someone or something. Sometimes your will is aligned with the Lord's, and if so, then that's called righteous anger. Sometimes your will is not aligned with the Lord's, in which case that's called unrighteous anger. Right? It's right to be angry when you see injustice in God's creation. It's not right to be angry when that driver is not driving how you want him to drive. Right? God gets angry, and I expect God to say, you know what, I'm, I'm out. But here's what God does in the midst of his anger. He goes... Isn't there some guy named Aaron, your brother, the Levite? He can speak well. Behold, he's going to come to meet you, and uh, he'll be glad in his heart to do this. Speak to him when I've told you. Let him, uh, you put the words in his mouth, um, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I'll teach you both what to do. So here's what I'm shocked by, is the amount of protest and pushback that Yahweh, I am, tolerates in the midst of his people. Four pushbacks, four protests. This is not a three strikes, you're out thing. This is a four strikes, you're still in thing. The guy's going to say, okay, you know what? You're insecure about how your public speaking is. Use Aaron. Almost like where the Lord is content to use plan B with his miserably insecure leader. Isn't, this is just weird to me. God's relentless accommodation of Moses' ability to train wreck the good thing that God's trying to do in his life. That God is patient, that he's not in a hurry, that he's kind, he's pragmatically accommodating, he's providing everything that Moses needs to take the next step of faith. Notice that, that God doesn't give everything to Moses here. God doesn't give him it all at once, but he's kind of one at a time giving Moses what he needs to take the next step of faith. And that's most often how God operates in our lives, that he gives Moses what we, he gives us what we need to take the next step of faith. 
Do you sense that God is this patient with you? When you push back, when you say, no, not now. When you say, but I'm just a farmer. When you say, but I'm not good at speaking. When you say, um, but don't you know I've been a sinner? But don't you know that I've, don't you know that? But don't you know that? There's something in this narrative that shows that the Lord is not intimidated by our pushback and our protest. But rather, it's actually in that process of dialogue with God in prayer that he provides what we need in order to be faithful according to the way he's calling us to be faithful. That it would have been fair for God to rebuke Moses' faithlessness from square one. Burning bush, go tell them. I don't want to. Faithless, do it. But God keeps accommodating. He keeps providing. He keeps being patient. He keeps being kind. And there's something what we learn here about the name of God. Yahweh, what does this name mean? This name means patient. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. This name means accommodating. This name means open to dialogue. This name means he uses people like Moses who train wreck their potential and run away from what they're supposed to do in the first place. And the question is, how is this even possible? Why does God use Moses? Why is God relentless in his use of Moses? Why is God desperate? And here's what's even crazy here, is uh, going on down, I'm going to skip a couple sections here, I'm getting to um, verse um, 31, chapter 4, verse 31. They go and they tell the people, and it says, and the people believed. When they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped, that the people believed. This is not uncommon, where the people have more faith than the leaders of the people. This is actually a kind of a common theme in my experience of leading churches, in my experience of reading the scriptures. That's like the people of God are full of faith, and it tends to be the leaders who are nervous and insecure. They're not going to believe me. They're not going to believe me. They're not going to listen. And then Moses speaks, and the people listen. Aaron speaks, and the people listen, and people believe. You know, this is, especially like for a young pastor like myself, you know, faith is very much the product of experiencing God and the tension over time, right? Sometimes young people who think they have a lot of faith, they're just optimistic, you know, by disposition. But it's really like as you age and you experience suffering and you experience the faithfulness of God over decades, that's when your faith actually grows and is rich. To some, in that sense, a young man literally cannot have as much faith as an old man because faith is the experience of God being faithful over time. So some of you have more faith than me. Some of you have more faith than Landon. Some of you, and this is, this is kind of this pragmatic reality that Moses is all nervous. People aren't going to believe. He goes and speaks and the people believe. How is this possible? Why does God use a dumpster fire like Moses who can't speak, has ruined and squandered his potential, and all these bad things. It's because that's God's deal. That's what he does. And for Christians, you know, going back to that Brueggemann quote, that we're going to learn what God's name means by how he's revealing himself in this book and by his, how he's revealing himself in the book of Exodus. Um, as Christians, we don't just read Exodus like Jews. We read Exodus like Christians, meaning that all of these things are pointing forward to an even better revelation of who God is. That Jesus is not just God in the fire, 
He's God in the flesh. That Jesus is not just an insecure, inadequate, lisping Moses. Jesus is the true and greater messenger of God who's going to perfectly come and reveal the will. And Jesus is the one who makes God's use of Moses possible. Because when Moses is lacking faith, and when Moses is a murderer, and when Moses is impulsive, and when Moses is disobedient to the Lord's voice, it is Jesus, God in the flesh, crucified and risen, who makes salvation possible. That it's actually the blood of Jesus that makes Yahweh's utilization of Moses possible in retrofit. That we can look at Moses and see failure and faith in this mix of oil and water, messy of a person, and we can anticipate a future Savior, a future Jesus, who's going to come and make all things new. And the reason that God can use Moses, people like Moses, and the reason that God can use people like us, and the reason is that God is able to be patient for so long a time in the midst of our protests and insecurity and faithlessness is because of the substitutionary work of Jesus on our behalf. That we serve a God who lets people be in process. He does not immediately demand maturity, but rather he saves and uses people who are developing people, who are in-process people, who are learning what it means to follow people, who are messy and making their lives a mess people. That when Moses blows it and runs away and is insecure and pushes back and his circumstances look like God can't use him, God is relentless in his use and his pursuit of messy, unfaithful people, and that's possible because of the blood of Jesus. And so I want us to identify with Moses that all of us have squandered our potential in one way or another, that all of us have fled faithfulness in pursuit of some other form of comfort, that all of us have resisted God's call and his, his, his nudges that the Spirit is pushing towards, that all of us should not be usable by God, but yet we are because God is patient, accommodating, and gracious. And this brings me to my big idea, and I'm going to close right here. This is the big idea. I want to really knock down that God is not limited by past sins, current circumstances, or our ongoing insecurity. You have past sins. You have circumstances that preclude you from engagement with God. And you have an ongoing sense of insecurity. But me, God, why me? And God's not limited by that but he works in the midst of it. And so whatever protest you have, that God's gonna use you to be a part of building his church, that God's gonna use you to be a part of building his kingdom, that God's gonna use you to be a part of being a light to the nations, whatever protest you have, God hears it. He's not afraid of it. He's okay with you bringing it to him honestly, but you gotta know that he's gonna listen and accommodate, but he's still gonna relentlessly use you to be a part of what he's doing in Prescott and in the large area. I want to pray for us, and then uh, we'll respond in some music. God, I ask that whatever protests we have, that we would honestly bring them to you. God, I think there's something worth admiring in Moses, his courage and pushing back, his courage and saying, but God, his courage and uh, not pretending that he's something that he's not, but actually his courage and um, being transparent in who you are. God, let us be that transparent, let us be that honest, but let us allow ourselves to be redirected because of the blood of the Son, because of what you've done in our lives and because of what you're doing in our lives, that we would take the next step of faith, trusting that you're gonna provide what we need. In the name of your Son, we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, Seth.
Worship is not something that we simply do here while singing songs on a Sunday, but rather worship is our life. Uh, Romans 12 says, therefore, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And so for us, the way we relate to people, the way we handle our resources, the way we just do all of life is worship. And so we continue to worship this morning in our response in three ways. And the first is through reflection. And so as Nate plays, and then you have some time here, a few moments to just pause and think, to reflect on, on Seth's words and, and God's word out of Exodus, uh, the last few things he said just stick out to me. What are the, the past sins that I keep going back to, whether actually committing or in my mind? What are the current circumstances that I view as walls and obstacles? And what are the ongoing insecurities that, that Satan uses to keep me from being who it is that God has created me to be? That, that causes me not to embrace being human the way God has made me to be. So reflect on that and recognize that Jesus triumphs over all of that, not because of our greatness, but because of his. And so take a few minutes in reflection. We worship in our reflection. We, we continue to worship also by taking communion. And so for, for us this morning, communion is actually kind of the, the gospel both symbolized and materialized for us. As we take the bread and we dip it into the cup, remembering is that his body that he gave up for us and his blood that he allowed to be shed for us did not stay down but he rose and he conquers and he is always faithful and he is the everlasting rock in the midst of our circumstances and insecurities and sin so as you take communion know that Christ is literally with you and leading you and so even as we think about the next steps the next day our week of worship is Christ empowering you, not you living this out. So feel free, whether it's by yourself or with your family or community, there's one communion station here or three in the back during this next song to get up and to take communion and recognize Christ is in you and with you. And then lastly, we give. Because giving is a catalyst for our worship. When we give, we recognize that God, what we have is not ours, it is yours. And you have gifted it to us for this season and it may be here tomorrow and it may not we present it before you as worship, recognizing that you are God and that we are not, but again, you are always faithful, so we give to you what is yours, and so uh, we have the opportunity to give, whether that's in the two boxes in the back of the room, or on the card in front of you, there's a, a description of our website, you can go to restorationaz.org and click give, give here as part of our worship, the everyday stuff of life as well. Let's continue to worship now in our response. 